Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachna. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mind Shifters Radio. Hello and welcome to Mind Shifters Radio. I'm Tim Hayes. I'm your host for the first hour. And today is Tuesday, May 30th, 2023. As always, we're grateful to everyone who's joining us here today, whether you're listening live or through the archives, as we spend another couple of hours teaching and supporting people in using some of the most powerful, effective, efficient, and accessible tools I've ever encountered. These tools are available absolutely free through the tireless efforts of Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice on the website at whyagain.org. If you go to that website and click on the two words that they start here in the upper left-hand corner, it will take you to a page where you can download and read Chapter 24 of Dr. Michael Rice's book. His book is titled, Why is this happening to me again? And that chapter of the book contains a narrative description and explanation of the primary tool in this work. That tool is called the Reality Management Worksheet, sometimes called the Reality Management Wake-Up Sheet. And it's a tool I've been using to great effect for over 18 years to improve the quality of my life and most of my relationships and to turn any negative emotional experience I have into part of the infallible guidance system that each and every one of us has been given. You can also download the actual worksheet process itself. It's a simple PDF file. Click the link, download it, print it off, copy it as often as you'd like, and use it over and over again absolutely free. You can also go to your app store and type in the three words, Heartland Aramaic Forgiveness. And if you choose to do that before you're done typing the word forgiveness, you'll see the glowing heart icon. If you tap on that, it will let you download a completely free and private app that contains the Reality Management Worksheet. It contains an abbreviated version of that worksheet process and a copy of the Dragon Klingon game, which is a wonderful way to introduce these tools to even younger audiences. You can also download a whole host of audio files of shows just like this one, where people have been stepped through the worksheet process and or given powerful testimonials about how the use of these tools has improved the quality of their life and relationships. We hope people do all of that soon and often, primarily because it tends to improve the quality of people's lives the more they actively apply these tools in their lives, and secondarily because it tends to prompt comments, questions, answers, and testimonials And if you have any of those and you're willing to share them with us, give us a call at 
888-999-3581. Call that number and press 1, and it'll put the little icon of a hand by your phone number. And I'll turn on the microphone and announce you by your area code, and we can have a conversation. And we greatly appreciate whenever anybody chooses to do that because it makes it far easier for us to live into our intention with this work. Our intention with this work is to be a service. And if you let us know how things are landing for you and or what would be of most service to you, we would appreciate it. I have been out of the office and away from the show for... um, over a week and so um, one of the times when I was listening in I I, I heard for the first time that uh, it was a replay of, of the, the May 10th show and the quality of the recording was quite poor so my apologies for that um, I don't know what happened in the trans transcribing it from one source to another but it made it quite a poor quality recording Um, I have uh, the pleasure tomorrow of interviewing not for this show but earlier before the show tomorrow I will be interviewing Sandy Wilder who is the lead listener the head head listener for the Educare Unlearning Foundation in Grafton Illinois which is down by St. Louis, Missouri. And that's just to say, if you know somebody, if you have read a a book, if you've heard a podcast, if you've felt really uh, lifted up by a work that's anything like the work we're doing here, please let us know. I am gladly accepting... um, recommendations, I'll call it, for uh, books to read or people to interview. And um, if you know of somebody, it would be greatly appreciated that you let us know who is your favorite author about spiritual work or who's running a very uplifting podcast um, or who is it that you know is has been uh, a frequent guest on other people's podcasts, like um, Christian Sundberg, who doesn't run his own podcast, but he's done a number of interviews on uh, other people's podcasts. If you have a name like that, we would greatly appreciate your sharing it as a suggestion because that project, the Journey's Dream project, continues. And um, any assistance you might give in pointing us toward good interviewees would be appreciated. I have um, I've had quite the busy time just since returning. Uh, and one of the the sessions I just had this morning had quite a bit to do with the the concept of judging, and we've talked about this recently. I it came up in a an interview with um, 
Laura McGowan, who is the author of two books. One is We Are the Luckiest, and the other one is Push Off From Here. And I found myself saying in that conversation with her that judgment is so unproductive and destructive in its own way, and yet we seem to be addicted to it in this culture where we're trained into judging everything and everyone. And if it's an addiction, what do we do when we're trying to break an addiction? We go into abstinence. We we refuse to use that, whatever that thing is, that we seem to be addicted to. So what would our lives look like if we abstained from judging? And when that topic came up in my most recent session, it triggered the the questions about, well, how do you do that? And then do you just let people walk all over you and or, you know, is it it's not okay to make your own decisions about things and, and on and on and on? And, of course, it, it's, it's very important to have a concept that allows you to make interpretations of life and your situation for yourself to decide what's right for you at a period in time. Michael Rice talks about it as though um, he's going to make the distinction between what's right for me and what's not right for me. And in this way, he avoids saying that person is wrong or that behavior is wrong or that situation is wrong. And the term that I use and, and define to help get around that set of questions is the concept of to discern something. And I can discern that something is different than what I would prefer without having to judge that thing as bad or wrong. I can discern that this is something I would rather not engage in or that I don't want the consequences that I could see would come from engaging in a particular behavior or spending a lot of time with different people who engage in certain behaviors. And I can choose to leave their proximity or choose against spending time with them without needing to say they're bad or they're wrong or what they're doing is inappropriate. And the example I use most often when I have people in my offices, I say, I can tell that the, the difference between the color of the chair you're sitting in and the wall and the difference between the color of the wall and the door and the difference between the color of the door and the carpet and I can clearly see that to my level of perception, these colors are different. And that's discerning the difference in these colors. It's not saying one is better or worse than another. It's simply saying, I can tell the difference. And then once I've decided, okay, I can tell the difference, now I can make a decision about 
do I want, do I prefer this color over that color? Would I choose to decorate this part of the room with this color or that color? Would I want this color or that color as this chair or that chair, etc.? And I don't need to say everything that's not like my favorite color is a bad color. When you're trying to decide who to spend your time, intelligence, money, and energy with, how to, how to spend your time, intelligence, money, and energy throughout the day, and or what kind of people you would like to associate with, please feel free to make that determination based on your ability to discern one set of potential consequences from another and your own personal preference. And notice that if and when you do that, the way you can tell if you are using discernment or you're using judgment is that judgment will always carry with it a tightness or a tension Judgment will always have a constriction, a contraction, a discomfort of sorts. And discernment will be clean and clear and light. You know, I I don't have to believe in the color brown to see that the chair across the room is a color brown. I don't have to believe that blue is better than brown in order to see the difference between the two of them. I don't need to judge the brown is wrong in order to say I would prefer the blue love seat and, and prefer to have a blue love seat rather than a brown love seat. So just a useful concept that came up in the last session and I, I wanted to highlight that because it does seem to be a stumbling block for quite a few people that um, because, you know, probably in part because we are trained so rigorously to judge and Many people have observed that the more they judge, the less happy they are in life. And there is a, a very useful distinction to be made between judging and discerning. If that's clear, great, we can move on. If that's not clear, please raise a hand. Let us know. What are your thoughts? Our call-in number is 563-999-3581. Also, I didn't mention this, but you're welcome to email. You can email me at tjh at mindshifters-academy.org. Or you can email genie at j-e-a-n-i-e at whyagain.org. That's w-h-y-a-g-a-i-n.org. I mentioned uh, before I left that I was digging into a couple different books. One of them is uh, The Infinite Way by Joel S. Goldstein, Goldsmith. 
and um, it is a lot of the same old, same old. It is a lot of uh, observations like they make in Christian science. It's a lot of observations and a call to living life through observation as opposed to belief or judgment. And um, it reminds me most of the same kind of um, observation that Christian science was based on and that uh, Mary Baker Eddy's work was based on. understanding that when you see something with your physical senses it is an extraordinarily limited view and that your perception is um, from a very very small subset of all that is and you cannot possibly know how restricted you are until after you've expanded your life experience and grown in different ways. So uh, what Joel S. Goldsmith used to do, people would call him and say, you know, I have this illness, I have this ache or pain, I have this infirmity, and, and the first thing he would do is forget their name and forget their list of symptoms and just go into silence and tap into awareness of the connectedness of all energy and the wholeness and the perfect blueprint for health and human health and which is to my understanding exactly what they did trying to follow Mary Baker Eddy's example with Christian science the other book that I was doing quite a bit of work with uh, over these past 11 days is My Big Toe. And My Big Toe is a book by Thomas Campbell. And it was um, recommended by um, Christian Sundberg as one of the main source materials for his work. And it's... Uh, very deep dive there are 11 hours worth of listening in the first of three books it's a trilogy called My Big Toe and um, and essentially it's, it's just a very carefully structured way to observe and question everything about your thought and everything about your levels of existence so that you can begin to step into, not just give lip service to, but step into a very active questioning of everything. Everything about your life, everything about your experience and perception and the more you do that, the more you can learn and see and grow. 
But as you might imagine, if it's 11 hours worth of listening for just the first of three books, it's not for everybody. It's not everybody's cup of tea. It's quite rigorous. And at times, you might you might experience it as pedantic. So I will give updates as we go, but so far I'm enjoying it. It is, and as I enjoy it, I realize there are not very many people that would be drawn to something that's that laborious a process. So area codes one zero, Susan, welcome. Hi, welcome back in the saddle, Dr. Kim. Yeah, I hope you had a great time, a good rest, change of scene. Yes, it was uh, it was delightful. It was near perfect weather and um, lovely companionship and new new surroundings. So it was lovely. Great. <clears throat> Your business. I about- I understand that you did that you did some traveling. Yeah, we went to a graduation of one of my daughter's boys. Um, And I missed a few shows in there because of that. But I've been back on for a couple of days. And I listened to your Dale Allen Hoffman. I think that's the only one I listened to of your replays. And that's the third time I've heard it, and it's great every time. See why you play every once in a while. Um, what you were talking about, about judgment, I've been thinking a lot about that too. And one of our members in our support group sent us a rather long summary of an even much longer book called The Doctrine of Vibrations, subtitle Integral Monism of Kashmiri Shavenism. I've never heard it put that way, but in any case, It's basically saying what we see as objects are manifestations of consciousness and the events which constitute the universe are always integral events happening within consciousness because their essential nature is consciousness itself. The level of consciousness And at the level of pure consciousness, and I'm reading from my summary, which I wrote for the radio show, um, everything is realized to be part of the fullness of the experience and hence no longer bound by the conditions which impinge on the object. I think of that as judgments. And he said, within this, we humans can become aware and self-aware but he's saying we're all inside it so when i walk around now like i just did a huge making up for traveling huge grocery shopping i saw people of all sizes and shapes behaving in all sorts of ways i was thinking about this reading that we're all part of this consciousness and that person is my experience of God's self. And as soon as you think of it as God's self, which is my self, how can you judge it? You can only say, wow, there I am in that form or something like that. I mean, I haven't even sorted this out yet, but it 
helps diffuse any kind of separation, which then allows for judgment. And you're right, you can choose not to go in a certain direction, but it, that happens after, for me anyway, after the the relief of realizing I don't have to judge. There's some awful pressure involved in judging as if we have to. And if we don't have to, it's such a relief. I don't know how we got there or I got there, but anyway, that's, I wanted to just put that in a, kind of all over the place because I just got home from that shop and there were bags all over the house. And, <clears throat> anyway, so I love the topic. Hope we spend some time well, it, on it. It, it it makes me think about another part of, of the last session where there was the, the, the person was talking about how when he was with somebody else, that person walked out in, in, into his view wearing something that he, he didn't say anything out loud to her, but he thought, that's ridiculous, that's just ego. She's only wearing that because of ego, et cetera. Yeah. And, and, he, and he talked about a whole series of questions that came up for him. Why would somebody do that? Well, as he was asking those questions, stating that he had those questions come up in the session, he didn't ask them to the other person. Right. And yet, as he was making those statements in the session, it was clear they were more statements based on the conclusion that it was ridiculous and it's unhealthy and it's full of ego and it's it's uh, based on insecurity and all of these other things. But he was posing them as questions. So it brought us to the idea of what's the use of a question? Right? What's my objective when I ask a question? Am I asking a question to prove I'm right and they're wrong? Am I asking a question in a perverted kind of a Socratic method where I'm going to try and teach them the error of their ways by asking them questions that they will then answer in a way that will lead them to the conclusion I want them to have? And that's a perversion of the Socratic method. Mm -hmm. The Socratic method is that a teacher will ask a student questions so that the student can explore for him or herself right. what their own perception is, what their own preference is, what their own experience is. And so it led us to a discussion about what's my objective when I ask a question? Am I asking a question to prove I'm right and the other person's wrong? Or am I asking a question to genuinely try to understand this other person's perspective mm -hmm. with allowance? with acceptance, with appreciation mm. for differences. Yep. And yeah. The, so so how will I know? Because you know, my ego can get in the way too. Right? You can feel how will it. I know the difference? Well the well well the difference is I will feel something like a tension. I will feel Yeah. a a, a contraction, a constriction, a negative emotional energy, a negative physical energy. We talked about how when this person walked into his field of view and he saw what they were wearing, he instantly felt offended. Mm -hmm. And that's 
there's the, the clue. What was his feeling? What was his sense of contraction or negativity mm-hmm. or I'm right and this is wrong? Which comes with a kind of a, a more solid feeling. You know, Guy Finley would say, in our culture, we're, ta- we're taught to believe that the more angry I get, the more it means I'm right and the other person is wrong. Right. And Guy Finley says, your anger doesn't prove you're right. Your anger only proves that you don't know what rightness is in that moment. Uh-huh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So we talked about how my own personal spiritual psychological growth occurs as I get better and better at noticing the earliest warning signs of tension or judgment or constriction or contraction within me. Yeah. And I work to dismantle that. I work to ask questions to understand that. I don't ask questions Mm -hmm. to understand why this other person is wearing this or that. I start asking myself questions like, how am I creating this emotion? What am I making Mm -hmm. this situation mean? Where is there a lesson for me in this? If I'm in pain, I'm in error. The more Mm -hmm. recent version that Michael Rice has on his worksheet is, if I'm in pain, my thoughts are in error. Mm. It does help, though. I I, I like that exercise, but that, that perpetuates the separation of that person from me. Uh, you can straighten out what you're doing, but that person is still out there. But I love this Vedanta idea. And it's not Advaita Vedanta, because Advaita Vedanta actually says there is dualism and there is non-dualism, and there are both there. This one is saying there's nothing at all, no dualism. It's all non-dual and if it's non-dual there's the correction right in there that is me walking down the street in a skimpy outfit (laughs) or whatever it is that's me expressing god myself Uh, it's a whole other way of looking at the same thing and it's true i've often noticed when i ask someone a why question the judgment put in a way that isn't obvious right away but it's aimed at criticizing or judging and so i watched the why words but that's great because this is like coming at the same judgment problem from two angles and getting a lot of help from both sets of approaches well and the idea of when you're starting to use words like dual and non-dual mm-hmm. the idea is more about the experience and so in, yeah. in questioning, how is it I'm creating an experience of tension? It's like just a step or two ahead of or behind. Right? I, the next couple steps are going to be, okay, let me recognize how I'm creating an experience of being separate from someone where there's no separation. Mm-hmm. It's all about what I'm creating in my own life experience. And the more I wake up to that, the sooner I can interrupt that process of creating an experience of being different and just 
relax into the flow of life, which is that we're all in part of the flow of creation. We're all one. I've never been able to do the we're all one thing. The nearest I've ever come is this idea that I just had read about of saying, there I am, wearing a skimpy outfit. There I am, a young woman. That's me and some other, I I must have done that or wanted to do that or I'm doing that now or it's sort of like gluing that person to myself so that I can't put distance between that person in order to judge that person. But I'm still, I think I'm still very much in the separateness realm. Well, if it works for you, if it works for you, do more of it. Yeah. Yeah, if it helps, do more of it. Yeah. If you've had decades of training and mental, emotional conditioning and brainwashing training, whatever you want to call it, to see yourself as different from those around you, you're not likely to reverse that in a moment. Oh, absolutely true. And and yet, it is reversible. Anything that's been I done hope so. be undone in that, in that perspective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the admonition from me would be, so please be gentle with yourself as as you engage that process. Mm, good. Thank you. <clears throat> My cat agrees with you. <laughs> okay. Well, again, it's amazing. You keep finding these new books. I have a story to tell about the Sunbird book, by the way. My one of my best lifelong friends has been married for 56 years. She's my age, taxed, and a couple of strokes, and is in and out of the hospital, and she's very frightened. And when she told me that, I said, you've got to get this book. And I told her a walk in the physical. Now, they were students of the Course in Miracles for years, so I knew this wouldn't be a stretch for them. She said, my husband's on his way into the hospital. He's got his book, the book, in his hand. We read it to each other out loud. It has helped us so much accepting the trauma of this situation as part of the walk in the physical and part of our brave heroism. You know, all this stuff she said, we are just, eating it up and our kids are too they have two daughters one is a life coach and she is loving the book so this is just wonderful that you found that book and we're we're sharing it all around now i'm glad to hear it i uh i I think that you know as as for any book like this if the person has been prepped appropriately or is at the right point in their own personal journey and growth, the the book is, it's like the key in the keyhole, right? And if it's the right key in the right keyhole, it unlocks magical stuff. Mm -hmm. That's that's what it's doing. It's like the book, the, The Mirror Theory, um, 
if I had come across that book at any other time in my life, I probably would not have found it uh, either very useful or I wouldn't have found it anywhere near as as the specific time it came into my life and with the recommendation of somebody that I respected. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. I, I needed to lean on, I needed to lean on that respect I had for the person that recommended the book to me in order to even get past the first fifty pages. Right. And yet, the more I read in that book, um, the more I, I highlighted and used post-it note markers and underlined and and I think I've mentioned it here before that I did it with that book more than any other book I've ever I wasn't about to teach a class in right I I wasn't well, marking it up for any reason other than that I wanted to remember this particular saying or that particular saying mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. I know and some of these books are published not in the most uh, mainstream sort of way. They might be self-published or they might look kind of cheesy or the design might be funny. For a lot of reasons, I might not bother with a book because of how it is presented. And so to have somebody say, get this book, that's the ticket. And it doesn't matter how it looks or how it was published or even how it's written. That helps to have it be written well. And thank goodness he does write well. But I've read books that aren't written very well, but they're full of good stuff. Can't think of any at the moment, but it's possible anyway to say. So that's good. The trust factor to lend yourself, lend your mind to stretch in that direction as much as you need to, to get into it. Yeah, if if I won't let it in, you know, you shall not pass. I have the power to say that. Mm -hmm. I have the power to shut my mind, and it will stay shut. And boy, how much we do that, or at least I do that anyway. Not just with books. Situations, people, (laughs) while I was shopping, I drove past Hobby Lobby, and because they're Trump supporters, I don't go in there, and I think, there I go again, you know, and I've just made this huge judgment and written somebody off. Yep, we do it all the time, Mm. and we're blind most of the time to the rationalizations and the mental gymnastics that go along with that. And the 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 teaching, the the spiritual path would have me say, let me take a look at that. Let me question yeah. how it is that I jump into judgment and I jump into contraction and I jump into these negative emotions. And I believe when my mind tells me that all of that is being caused by something outside of me. Mm-hmm. I don't have to give it up. 
I don't have to instantly give it up, but I don't have any possibility to give it up if I won't understand that it's all self-created. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so if I can open myself to observation at deeper and deeper levels that I can give myself permission. And Krishnamurti, and I started reading Krishnamurti back in the early 80s, he was the, the one that just, it was the first time I'd ever encountered somebody that just said, question everything. Question everything. Mm. And he was, um, to this day, uh, he was unparalleled in never backing off of that. Right? Once he makes an observation that thought is flawed and the process of thought is flawed, then there's no situation in which when I'm having a thought and I reach a judgment from that and I feel a negative emotional state that I justify it. Ever. He's the most rigorous. Now, I've, I've you know run across a few people. The Thomas Campbell is is one, and Christian Sundberg hints at it, but I haven't read enough of his stuff to know that. But even you know, he, even the the power of now. You know, the author of the Power of Now. His name will come to me. But even in that oh, book, oh, where he. Eckhart Tolle, and um, you know, I had somebody who was just so excited. She read that book, and she said, "Oh, you've got to read this book. It's phenomenal." And so I read it because you know she was a good friend, and we traded book titles and things like that. And she was so excited when she got back together with me. Oh, how'd you like it? I said, "Well, it was okay." She goes, "Okay? What do you mean?" I said, "Well, it's um, <laughs> it's Krishnamurti Light." She said, "What?" Yeah. I said, "Yeah, it's oh, Krishnamurti, the West Fine." And she was floored. She took it as an insult, which, of course, of is course. just an indication that, that there's more work <laughs> to do, right? Yeah. It doesn't matter who you're reading, whether it's Krishnamurti or Eckhart Tolle. If you take offense when somebody makes a, a statement like that, all it means is you've got more work to do. It might mean you have more work to do, too. Not I mean, if that I'm not upset a very about. Nice thing to say. Well, no, it's not. Oh, it's it? not a judgment. It's a discernment. He says very much the same thing as Krishnamurti, and <laughs> there are times where he violates his own premises right there in the book. And she said, "What do you mean?" I said, "An example of it is Krishnamurti. The fundamental of it with Krishnamurti is that you don't have any structure of thought." You don't use words to create new concepts and structures because it's based in this process of thought and it's flawed. So you just stay as close as you can to, you know, the thought and the questioning and the constant questioning. And when you create a concept or a construct, it has its own baggage with it. So don't do that 
you know, whenever you catch yourself doing that, question it, etc. And so she said, what do you mean? I said, well, an example of it is that Eckhart Tolle starts talking about the pain body. Well, oh, what yeah. Is the pain body? You know, that's, all right, the pain body. Now we've got a name. Now we've got a concept. Now we've got something for people to argue about. Now it's, it's, it's several steps removed from just experiencing your life. I told her it was a lovely book. Um, it didn't, you know, set my world on fire the way it did hers because I had been studying, not just reading, but studying mm. the the concepts and the idea of living in direct observation that Krishnamurti was recommending um, a couple decades before, mm. or maybe several decades before she introduced me to the, the Eckhart Tolle book. That was a great example. That's one thing I wondered about, the pain body. I thought, that's making it into a thing. Exactly. And then, what the, yeah. And it's a thought construct. It's just a construct yeah. of thought. And now there's something for me to struggle against or work against. You have it. Yeah. And what are you going to do with it? Because it's a, it's a thing, and, and, and it makes it more permanent in your system than it needs to be because it's been defined as a thing. <laughs> I'm going around. And so I either fight but... against it or I use it as as an excuse for something or, well, you know, I right. only did that because I was coming from my pain body or whatever. And right. all of that is exactly. just the machination of thought. Mm-hmm. And it has its own consequences. It isn't that it's necessarily bad or wrong. It just has its consequences. Mm-hmm. Great that you had that example to show her, because I bet she got it. Well, I hope she got it. Remember exactly verbatim, you know what the the conversation was, but you know it it is. I I, I brought that up to some people, and they want to argue about it, and they want to say, mm-hmm. no, that's not a construct; it's just a reality. Okay, and I I go into my God that, response. Then. A- okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Whatever you say. Yeah, but you're you're wrong and you're full of baloney. Yeah, okay. I just told you you're wrong. What do you mean okay? I said okay. <laughs> hmm. I have no no need to be right here. I'm just sharing some thoughts and and observing when I do, am I feeling tighter, constricted, contracted? Am I invested in proving that I'm right and the other person's wrong? And if I do, there's more work for me to do. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, it's like it's like the example of the person who's wearing something and I judge, oh, why would you have to wear that? Because it shows membership in this or that or it's some award or plaque on the wall and I say, Well, what is wrong with this person that they have they're so insecure that they have to wear their awards on their sleeve or whatever. What's going on in me that has me thinking, What is wrong with this person? Right? What's going on in me that makes me revert to my addiction to judgment when I mm-hmm. say I've so much work on, you know, releasing that addiction to judgment. And then if I catch it, 
there's more work for me to do right there. And then if I dismantle that and I actually have curiosity and I I want to engage this person, maybe they're a significant person in my life, and I want to understand them and their motivations, then I can ask questions from that calm, clear, relaxed space that says, so tell me, what what's the significance of this to you? I, I notice that you wear this quite often. T- tell me about you know where you got these things or what that means to you or why it's important for you. I want to understand from your perspective. And mm. I'll feel the difference yeah. in, inside me when I'm coming from calm, when I'm coming from certainty, when I'm coming from curiosity, that childlike curiosity, as opposed to I'm coming from having made the judgment that this is bad or wrong or inappropriate. <laughs> You have to be pretty cleaned up at that point in your own approach. It could be, I can imagine myself doing that as a way of continuing the why question and the guilt mongering. I'd have to be really aware of my game in order to do that. It's a great thing to be able to yeah, do. Yeah, but you, you, you have to be able to come at it from the perspective of what you were talking about earlier. This person's a reflection of me. I'm a reflection of this person. Right. Here's another being of brilliance and light. Mm-hmm. Here's the spark of consciousness that took form after a sperm and an egg came together and will end in dust. It's, we're all just a spark of consciousness. And there mm-hmm. is no difference. If you come from that perspective and you ask this other spark, spark of consciousness, what what is the meaning you have for this? Why do you choose this over that? Yeah. Then you can then you can have connection. Yeah. But, That's but you don't have connection from judgment. Right. <clears throat> connection. That's it. It's like what Pierre Pratervan says in his Gentle Art of Blessing and the 365 Blessings to Heal Myself and the World, whenever he sees some something that his mind tells him is suffering or he would be suffering if he, whether it's alcoholism or anger or impatience or mm-hmm. a physical infirmity, etc., he goes into his mind and he's been training himself for decades now to go into his mind and instantly start seeing that person in their wholeness, in their health, in literally in the opposite of whatever traits that that Pierre is perceiving mm-hmm. that Pierre would judge as negative. And he goes into his heart space and creates a loving image of that person and imagines sending that out to them that I bless you in your patience, I bless you in your total health and vitality, I bless you in your in your spiritual path, I bless you in your judgment. That's gorgeous. That's another way of closing the gap and getting connected. God, that's nice. I, I forgot that I had listened to that one too, Dr. Tim, that new interview. It was really good. In fact, I wanted to ask you, what are those four things? Um, uh 
commitment, uh, discipline, in order to practice the gentle art of blessing. He had four things he said, and uh, I don't know if you remember them. but Well, they're not coming to mind right now, but he was talking about how it needs to be genuinely heartfelt, heart-centered feeling. And it's mm-hmm. a feeling state he's going for, not just a thought. Yeah. And that's the that's biggest thing for me. Say again? That's, that is the hardest thing for me. That's the thing that I want to have happen. But for me, it's very intellectual. I decide, I intend to bless this person. And I can practice what he says, seeing them in their ideal, you know, if they're an alcoholic, you see them sober and healed and loving life and all that. But often the heart stuff doesn't always come or it comes after I've practiced the other stuff. But he said there are four things well, you do. Yeah. Well, but the the, the way to, to get at that is what Michael would say is imagine holding a newborn or imagine, you know, uh, pet, petting one of your right. cats as they're sitting in your lap purring, and and remember the physical sensation, the energetic presence, and let that same energy vibrate through you. Yeah. And then think about the person you want to bless, and then add the intellectual image on top of that feeling state. Yeah. All those tools. To get you there. But the power of it is obvious. That's why people like Michael keep putting it in their tools. Mm-hmm. Right? Step four in the, in the worksheet process is I want to reconnect to love. And when we do this in the support group or in a session with somebody, I slow down in step four and they read. I connect to my, to my nature as love, etc. And then I have them take a break and do a, a, a meditation, do a visualization, find one of the most loving safe memories, happy, strong, joyful memories from their recent or distant past and bring up those thoughts and pour their mind energy into it until they feel a shift in their heart space. Mm. There's real power in that. And, you know, years ago when I would listen to Michael talk about the worksheet process, he would say, that's the power that does any transmuting of energy, any healing, any shifting is not you know the the power of it is reconnecting to my true essence my awareness of my true nature as love and having that energy when i bring up something that's less than that loving energy while i keep love conscious active and present whatever's less than that gets transmuted into that you might think of it as energy and energy that's that's vibrating at a, at a wobble rather than the energy that's vibrating in the solid core of, of creative energy. Some would call it love. And there's some energy that's broken off over here. It's vibrating at a wobble. If I bring them close enough together, the solid core of love changes the vibration of this other energy. It transmutes it to the one and the same energy. Mm. <clears throat> There's that word vibration again. The, the healing, the transmutation, the shifting that happens in the worksheet process is not because I decide this or that. 
or I change my thoughts to this or that. The shifting, the healing, the transmutation of energy happens because I bring that vibration of that loving energy into my conscious awareness at the same time that there's something less than that vibration mm. in my conscious awareness. And you maintain an intention to do that at all times. As often as I can. Uh, yeah. And with practice, it gets easier. There are a few words that have been very helpful. Intention is one of them. Because it's not a threatening word. It's just a reorienting of the mind and intention. I like that word a lot. I'm glad. It's, it's, in, it's intended to be of use. Mm, yeah. Well, thank you for calling again uh, on my first day back live after a while of being no, away. Back. Always good to hear from you. Thank you for that. Um, we've expended our first hour, so I will remind us all that we come from love. We're made of the stuff we call love. We actually are love, and everything else is false. And I will welcome Jeannie Rice. Thank you, Doctor. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. Um, you're sounding a little bit better. I hope that continues and your voice gets stronger. And Thank you. I look forward to hearing that. that. You're in the near future, hearing your dulcet tones once again. <laughs> Thanks. I appreciate it. Blessing. Welcome back. Okay. Bye. So welcome, everybody, to the second hour of Shifters Radio. And today is Tuesday, May the 30th, 2023. Their call-in number is 563-999-3581. And press 1, and that puts you into queue to talk to us. And we would love to hear your comments and questions because that makes this your show. And, yes, I am on the mend, getting better on the other side of the healing crisis. I uh, actually got almost seven hours of sleep last night, which is fabulous. And I got to sleep laying down instead of sitting up, so... It's definitely in, moving in the right direction, and I was well enough that Michael took me out to dinner last night to celebrate our 18th anniversary. I told him after the radio show yesterday, I said, oh, my goodness. I said, we didn't even wish each other happy anniversary on the show. But we've been together 19 and a half years and been married 18. And if you're on Facebook, we posted pictures of the wedding 18 years ago. It was actually a three-day weekend. People started showing up on Friday. We rented a boat, a couple boats, actually, and um, went out on the lake and had a picnic on Saturday and then had a leisure Sunday, and then the wedding was about 4 o'clock Sunday afternoon. And it's actually kind of comical. One of the pictures, by 4 o'clock in the afternoon, the air conditioning actually had gone out in the heart center, and it was so hot. And so I am standing in the walk-in cooler holding my wedding dress up, trying to cool down before the wedding starts. But anyway, it was a beautiful day, and we had a wonderful time last night, and so glad that things are moving in the right direction. So I will start reading until Michael gets signed on, and this is we're reading out of The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer, and we finished Chapter 3, and Chapter 4 starts with The Lucid Self. There is a type of dream 
called a lucid dream in which you know that you're dreaming. If you fly in the dream, you know that you're flying. And you think, hey, look, I'm dreaming that I'm flying. I'm going to fly over there. And you're actually conscious enough to know that you are flying in the dream and that you are dreaming the dream. And that makes me think of, um, I actually did this one time. There was somebody that was really giving me a, a challenge in one of my dreams. And I told him in the dream, I said, if you keep on, I'm going to wake up. It was like, you know, threatening in my dream that I'm going to wake up from this dream and then you'll be gone. But anyway, that's a very different from regular dreams in which you are fully immersed in the dream itself. This distinction is exactly the difference between being aware that you are aware in your daily life and not being aware that you are aware. When you are an aware being, you no longer become completely immersed in the events around you. Instead, you remain inwardly aware that you are the one who is experiencing both the events and the corresponding thoughts and emotions. When a thought is created in this state of awareness, instead of getting lost in it, you remain aware that you are the one who is thinking the thoughts. You are lucid. This raises some very interesting questions. If indeed you are the indwelling being who is experiencing all this, then why do these different levels of perception even exist? When you're seated in the, self of a, in the awareness of self, you are lucid. Where are you when you are not seated deeply enough inside the self to be the conscious experiencer of all that you are experiencing? To begin with, consciousness has the ability to do what is called focus. It's part of the nature of consciousness. The essence of consciousness is awareness. And awareness has the ability to become more aware of one thing and less aware of something else. In other words, it has the ability to focus itself on certain objects. The teacher says, concentrate on what I'm saying. What does that mean? It means focus your consciousness on one place. Teachers figure you know how to do that. Who taught you how to do that? What class in high school taught you how to take your consciousness and move it somewhere in order to focus on something? Well, nobody taught you this. It was intuitive and natural, and you've always known how to do it. So we do know that consciousness exists. We just don't normally talk about it. You probably went through grade school, high school, and college without anyone discussing the nature of consciousness. Fortunately, the nature of consciousness has been studied very closely in deep teachings such as yoga. In fact, the ancient teachings of yoga are all about consciousness. I'll read one more chapter and then I'll welcome Michael. <clears throat> I mean, one more paragraph. The best way to learn about consciousness is through your own direct experience. For example, you know very well that your consciousness can be aware of a wide field of objects. So it can be so focused on one object that you are then unaware of anything else. This is what happens when you get lost in thought. You can be reading, and then suddenly you're not reading anymore. It happens all the time. You just started thinking about something else. Outside objects or mental thoughts can catch your attention at any time. But it's still the same awareness, whether it's focused on the outside or on your thoughts. Welcome, Michael. Hello, Michael. Thank you, dear heart, and happy anniversary. Thank you. Yeah, I told them at the beginning that we forgot to tell you. I heard you. 
Happy anniversary yeah. to you too. The beginning of the best year yet of our eternal lives together. And it was a really sweet beginning. We had a, a really fabulous restaurant near here that we didn't know even existed that we went to for dinner. It was just a really sweet evening. So welcome, everybody. Delighted that you're here. Then we get to continue this conversation. And as Michael in his book talks about uh, awareness and focus, you know, there's an interesting dynamic in the world, and that is the world tends to make all kinds of noise to keep our awareness focused out there. In fact, in the, uh, in the ancient world, the, uh, the Romans identified it as bread and circuses, that when you kept the noise going, if you kept people's bellies full and you kept the entertainment going, that you were able to keep people's awareness away from themselves. And, of course, there's all kinds of noise going on in the world today that, uh, that plays out the same sorts of things. The whole political realm and all the drama and trauma that goes on tends to keep people from focusing on what's going on inside of themselves. And the, the invitation of this work is to at least dedicate some portion of your time to keeping your awareness in on the inner world, on the inner state of what's happening, and really paying attention oftentimes to some of the subtlest noises that go on inside and attention to those things, you find out that there are oftentimes layers upon layers upon layers underneath the surface that contribute to distorted perception that ends up leading to pain and trauma and ends up leading to creating as, as creators, to creating things that really aren't what life is all about. It really aren't things that serve us. And so that's where the forgiveness process comes in and the ability, having the skill to literally remove those things that disturb our state of mind and recognize that it's not the outer things that disturb our state of mind. It's the inner things because it's only the inner things that show up as perception. Yes, the outer world is the trigger. The outer world resonates things. But when that outer world stimulus has done its job, all it's done is resonated something within the mind. And the work of cleaning up what's happening in the mind, the disturbing energies, the energies based in hostility or fear, become a really key part of the healing process. And as you face and remove those energetic patterns, those things that are based in hostility or fear, perception gets cleaner and cleaner and cleaner. Perception can show us something, but perception showing us something and having the direct experience of something are two different things. When you get the noise in the mind to its quietest point, then the mind becomes a stepping stone into experiencing directly the actuality, experiencing through a mind different than just firing the brain cells out of the past, 
experiencing differently than through perception. So there's the ultimately the ability to have direct awareness of what's going on in the world around us energetically without reference to the mind. That, that faculty has been called intuition. And developing the ability to listen to that higher faculty puts us in a place where it, it's not just the mind that we have to rely on for our perception, but that we have alternate abilities that can take us into many, many different places that the ego part of us would never go. And again, the ego tends to create noise that distracts us. You know, much as the world has distracted us, the ego is built oftentimes on distraction so that the noise keeps us busy, busy, busy. You know, it's one of the biggest drugs on the planet is busyness. I'm sure you've heard us talk before about the, uh, the workshop series we did in uh, a, a super high security prison up in Ionia, Michigan. And uh, we did uh, two weeks of Why Is This Happening to Me Again workshops there. And then a teacher there locally uh, went in and carried on and did an eight-week series and was going to uh, teach laws of living. And in the eight-week series, the, uh, the requirement to move from that support group into laws of living was doing five worksheets a day. And this is a group of people that are in a high-security maximum security prison. There's a facility in Ionia, Michigan, where they bring all the worst prisoners from the whole state of Michigan, all the most troublesome prisoners. And they're locked in their cells, you know, unless they've got a job in the commissary for a couple hours or, you know, what have you. They're locked in their cells 23 out of 24 hours a day, seven days a week to get an hour to get out and exercise. And the requirement going into the laws of living class was doing five worksheets a day over that time period. That was like their admission ticket. And when it came time for the class to start, and there was a great deal of excitement about it, but every person, every man, it was a men's prison, every man in the, uh, in the, that wanted to take the class had exactly the same excuse as to why they didn't get their five worksheets a day done. And that excuse was they were too busy locked in their cells 23 out of 24 hours, seven days a week. And busyness can be the drug that keeps us from really stepping in and stepping up to the plate and doing the internal work that is required if we're ever going to truly wake up from, you know, there's a chapter in, in my book, and why is this happening to me again, called the has-been. And the has-been is that storage system within the mind, we talked about the other day as carbon-based memory, and that storage system for information that will just be triggered into activity and it will create all kinds of distractions and, and um, drama and trauma, but ultimately means absolutely nothing. And so the objective of the forgiveness process is to remove those energetic dynamics and return to literally the awareness, shifting awareness off of the perceptual mind off of the constructs of the mind into just the awareness of who we are as the presence of love and taking time each day to cultivate well 
the ego wants to distract us with all its noise to cultivate time just being aware of self and developing relationship with self as the presence of love not exactly something the world has shown us or motivated us to do and as you develop your awareness of that state more and more you get to source your mind energy from love and become a conscious creator you know the opening words of the book of John have been translated as in the beginning was the word and the word became flesh but in fact what it says is in the beginning was the mind energy and the mind energy became flesh that simple statement really when you look into it tells us that we're creators and if we're stuck in the mind energy creations of the past if bread and circuses keep emotions and you know um, sensations running high within our structure that creates a noise that covers up the truth of who we are so the bread and circuses becomes representative of the internal noise and the internal conversation that Michael's talking about in in this book that Jenny's reading and the objective is to and, and, and the noise that it makes we tend to call thought but it really isn't thought it's sort of just fragments of information assembled according to the goals that we hold for the moment and most people in today's world at least in my experience most people are focused on goals that have to do with survival and we're working with goals that have to do with survival we limit the function of physiology we literally limit the blood flow to the higher centers of the brain as long as one's goals are about how they're going to get something in fact one of the uh, recent pieces of sleep research has shown that people who don't get enough sleep tend to become focused on how they can get things survival type stuff as opposed to being able to focus on how they can function as human beings it locks in that survival mechanism that sympathetic dominant mode which totally and completely changes blood flow right down to the the, the way that blood flows in the body and where blood the, the the focal points into which blood flow in the structure the person who's in that survival mode blood flow is shunted away from higher functions and into the large muscles for the ability you know to strengthen the ability to run and fight and the lungs to bring enough oxygen to supply that and that comes at the cost of being able to properly digest properly rest and thrive and ultimately to be able to see to be able to use the higher parts of the brain the higher functions of the brain that only come when 
those parts of the brain are properly supplied with blood, but if we're focused on survival, the blood doesn't get there. The blood is shunted into those large muscles, again, in the lungs. So moving out of that sympathetic dominant state, quelling the fear, quelling the terror that so many people hold of the future. You know, we live in a country, sadly enough, where, if I remember the numbers correctly, 60% of people live paycheck to paycheck, and and if they ran into a crisis, they couldn't come up with $300 to get out of that crisis. I wonder who knows what impact that has on people, that we have a culture that allows that to continue, in fact, seems to, you know, from a legal perspective and the policies that run states and run the country, I wonder who understands that and maintains policies and keeps the threat on things like health care and social support programs, keeps a threat going so that people live in that survival mode. And one of the major repair mechanisms of that whole dynamic internally is to begin to shift awareness, even in the middle of survival, to shift awareness to and cultivate that state of being that's called love, cultivating that the truth about who we are. And as we cultivate relationship with that, the whole energy system shifts out of survival mode into trust mode. You know, this was an issue thousands of years ago. You hear this man, Yeshua, saying, don't be concerned about tomorrow. If you're in survival mode, if you're afraid for tomorrow, you know, remember, you know, and he gives people that warning. And yet, if the mind has been programmed to survive, if its goals are all focused on survival, then there are going to be a million worksheets to do on letting loose of that survival mode so that the distortions of the mind can be removed. One of the things you remember the Course in Miracles says is that you must be aware of the distorting power of the way you want it to be. And if the focus is on survival, then it tends to keep the lowest potential moving in physiology, the lowest of genetic information moving in physiology. And when one starts to cultivate their relationship themselves as love, allowing the awareness of that to occur. I mean, literally taking time each day to focus on sourcing mind energy from that state of love within yourself, it alleviates the stresses and strains of a thousand generations of people who were focused in survival. And you know, there's a whole section in the Course of Miracles on the development of trust. 
is you begin to develop trust, one moves out of sympathetic dominance into what's called parasympathetic dominance, or at least more a, a stronger parasympathetic function or balance. And now in that state, blood flows into the digestive system, so digestion works properly. Literally, the what's called the transverse and the descending colon, the eliminative organ, one of the major eliminative organs of the body, is tied to parasympathetics. And if parasympathetics aren't active, then that part of the body doesn't function properly. It doesn't have enough blood supply to function properly. Like, you know, how many millions of pounds of laxatives are sold in this country every year? Who would have thunk it? That's got to do with survival. If one's in survival mode, that sympathetic dominance and blood flow to those organs is cut off. So this taking the time each day, whatever's going on in your world, to simply function from this mind of love, to create a flow of mind energy in yourself based in love. There's a book written out there. I haven't read it, but I've read reports on it, and it sounds, it sounds like it's, it's right on target. And the, and the title of it is, You Can't Afford the Luxury of a Negative Thought. And yet survival is all about negative thoughts and constructing realities that are based in threat. And when the mind presents that threatened reality, one doesn't know any better that it's their mind that's doing it because of the distorting power of the way they want it to be. They'll believe the threat is out there in the external world. Once again, forgiveness allows the removal of those energetic patterns. And, you know, it's, it's like a two sided process. You've got to stay in balance with both. One, cultivating that relationship with the presence of love in you, with the fact that you are the presence of love. And the other, facing, dealing with, allowing yourself to become aware of those energetic patterns within that need to be forgiven. I remember a, a friend from New York City, an Italian lady named Frances that I knew many, many years ago. She was a little Italian lady. She'd come and come to my center in Atlanta and study with me. And she was probably in her 70s, and she shared with me one day a, a story about her father who was on his deathbed and was not very animated, was was you know, it was pretty clear he was getting ready to leave. And she asked him, Papa, what's, what's most important? And this man who had been pretty non-cognitive, non-functional, all of a sudden, the way she described it was really quite, quite humorous. Her father sat up and raised his hand high in the air with his finger pointing up. And, you know, he spoke mainly Italian, and, and his words were, Balencia, Balencia, balance. And so the balance between spending time cultivating your relationship with 
being able to source mind energy from the presence of love and, and doing the work of forgiveness are both important. And we're here to support the awareness of those tools and delivering them to every mind, heart, and being on planet Earth. So that's what we're here to do. And we're glad you're here being part of the process. And, we have and if you're out there, and, well, then let's just say hello. I was about to ask that question, sweetie. This is a voice from our past. I believe this is Audrey, and it's 520. You are on the air. How are you? Welcome. Hi. Hey, young lady. Thank Good you. to hear your voice. It's been a while. It has, but it's been a wonderful journey. Tell us about it. What's been happening in your world? I Oh, um, goodness, goodness, and wellness. It all is good. And I thank you all for right. the virtue. And I'd like to uh, tell you of an experience uh, that I had when um, when I was a little little person. And... Um, my girlfriend's father was going to take us ice skating. Well, um, we couldn't afford ice skates, my parents, but I knew I was going to go ice skating, and I wanted to ice skate. So there was this person that I heard of, and her name was Sonia Henning. So she was an ice skater. So I used my imagination, and I imagined me skating just like her. And I did right. over and over. And, and I was so happy I skated. Okay, it was so real. Well, it came time to go in the car and we met my girlfriend's father and I put the ice skates on. I went on the, on the ice and I skated. Now, my question to you is please explain the power of imagination. Well, you know, we have five spiritual faculties, and the imagination is one of them. And if you break that word down, it's the ability to image in. And one of the things that they've done is they've had, let's say, for instance, and I'm talking about controlled research studies, where they've got a basketball player who stands a certain distance from the net and physically shoots baskets. And they've had uh, another person who just does nothing, and they have a third person in the test that doesn't ever touch a basketball but just sits in a chair and imagines shooting baskets. And the result of that research was that the improvement in the person who actually physically held the basketball and shot it and the person who sat in the chair and imagined shooting baskets was virtually identical. And the person who did neither had no improvement at all. So that ability to image in, to bring the energetic pattern in of what it is we want to create is a very powerful spiritual faculty. So it sounds like you discovered that one really early in your life. And unfortunately, a lot of people in the world use that faculty to imagine the terrible things that will happen to them rather than the way you used it to image in something wonderful to your life. And so nice work. It's pretty cool that you discovered that one that early. Well, and as I 
study the quantum, and I know that I am I am a very powerful creator, and I'm the experiencer of the experience. So right. I use it quite often, but I didn't know the concept. And oftentimes, especially when I'm going to drive the car into a very busy parking lot, and oftentimes I will imagine that the perfect parking spot is there. Now, it, it, it hasn't manifested yet because I'm driving, and I see the parking spot. I'm so grateful and I'm so happy. I'm like a little child at Christmas time that gets a gift. And I'm so happy and I just am so thankful for this person. But, and lo and behold, there it is, the parking spot, the empty parking spot just for me. And I'm I'm now um, realizing what a powerful creator that we all are. Yes, absolutely. And, and it so sounds thankful. like, I, I'll join you in that gratitude, and it sounds like, Audrey, you've used another of the spiritual faculties to teach you about how to use that imagination, and that faculty is intuition. And, and if you break that word down in, in inward, tuition, tutor, or teacher, that inside of each of us there is this teacher that Yeshua referred to 2,000 years ago as Ruka Dukutsha. And, you know, that power in us is Ruka Dukutsha. The, the, the Greeks translate the Holy Spirit, but it's not about a disembodied spirit being. In Aramaic, the definition of that Ruka Dukutsha is a feminine elemental force in us that undoes the effects of our errors and teaches us the truth. And intuition is the vehicle by which we receive information. And so it sounds like your intuition's been working well and that it's really taught you how to use that imaginative faculty and, again, to keep it on track with the wondrous things you want to create in life instead of the, the drama and the trauma things. You know, many people use those faculties for drama and trauma and then try to blame somebody else for it instead of taking responsibility and moving in an upward direction. So nice work. That's awesome. Yes, and I... I can see the same concept working when I do the worksheets. When I dismantle that discordant energy and then and then imagine a wonderful being of love that dismantles that that discordant energy and how beautiful it happens. So I, I, I thank you because life is unfolding and it is abundant. Thank you. Well, that's just really sweet to hear. And, uh, and what a great lesson for all of us, a great reminder. And, uh, and that you've taken it and you've put it to work in, that, in the arena, particularly of forgiveness. That's awesome. Nice work, yes. young lady. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Blessings. It's it's interesting, you go back to Yeshua 2,000 years ago, and he talks about that internal elemental force that was given to us to guide us. And, you know, at, at one point in the scripture, I can't quote exactly what the words are, but he says words to the effect of, you know, you can deny me and it doesn't matter, but don't deny this one that is in you. 
don't deny this Ruka de Kudja that is a gift directly from the Creator to guide your life. So nice work for bringing it forward to us in a, in a different way that helps to make it even more tangible and more understandable. Appreciate you. Appreciate all. Thank you. All right, young lady. You have a blessed one. Nice to hear from you. Thanks. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. That was a nice little gift. Hey, Miss Jeannie, do we have anybody else in the phone queue with a hand up or anything happening in the chat room? No, it's all quiet. Um, I will say that from yesterday's um, show on Remembrance that we created an actual page, and I've put the link to it in the notes for today, uh, that you can go to at swigin.org forward slash remembrance. And so you might want to tap into that. There's also some more uh, MP3s of shows about healing crisis. You can go out and listen to those, including the one from last Friday where we shared about my healing crisis. So there's some new stuff on the website. So go out there and look around, click, let us know what you think. And Yay. Four, or, <laughs> I was getting ready to give the old phone number. That's been a long time. 563 Yeah. 3581 and press 1 and you're first in line without waiting. We'd like to hear from you. How can we support you? What's on your mind? I did have an email the other day from someone. Let me see if I can open it up. It's not in my regular email. And they said that they would like to hear you expand upon, you know, the word love is referenced in the Aramaic several times in several different ways. And uh, let me find that email. Um, hmm. Just a um, well, I am not finding it right off, but they wanted you to expand on the meaning of love from the Aramaic. Okay, well, Are you there, Mike? Oh. let's see. I am, I am. Um, well, we're. I assume that the question is probably rotating or, or focusing around the word rachma when the Greeks told us that people asked Yeshua what's most important in the law, they tell us that he said, love the creator, love neighbor as you do yourself. In Aramaic, though the word there was not love, it relates to love, but it was not love, it was rachma. And rachma, it turns out, is a filter in the frontal lobes of the brain that acts as both a filter and a gateway, the gateway for bringing love into the human form and the filter that inhibits intentions based in hostility and fear. I remember back, we, we were working with this at Heartland, this goes back, geez, 20 years ago, during Laws of Living, 
and we started to get, you know, there were 20 different translators, some of the world's top aramicists, who were working on doing the translation work, but they had difficulty coming up with a true definition for this word, Brahma. And over a period of years working with it, what we discovered was that it is actually a filter in the frontal lobes of the brain that literally is the opening through which love enters form. I remember that right about the time we were working on that, I actually was traveling with the Kabor's manuscript. We were working on getting high-resolution digital images made of it. And there was, I was in California, and there's a community in Southern California that is Aramaic, Aramaic speaking, and and we had taken the manuscript to them, and you know we're having discussions with them and asking questions, and one of the questions we asked was about the meaning of this word rachma, and what we were told by these people who were native Aramaic speakers was that the nuances of the word, the real meaning of it, had been lost, but that their tradition said that it was the most precious jewel you could possess, possess, jewel as a diamond in a ring. And that, you know, description really fits with the fact that if Rachma is active in a mind, there is love present in that mind. If Rachma is shut down, is closed off, then the gateway that our created human essence, which is love, is closed. When it's closed, we're left to function out of whatever definitions, whatever imaginations there are in the mind about self and about life. And the the self that is just a product of what's going on in carbon-based memory, Yeshua said that self had to die in order for us to live. And it's interesting, this, this word rachma, there is no comparable word in the Latin or the Greek or in our English language. It takes a whole paragraph to describe what that word means in Aramaic. And so there are basically three filters in the frontal lobes of the brain. There's rachma, there's hostility, and there's fear. When fear is active, the intentions that pass into awareness are those that are negative. When hostility is active, the intentions that flow into awareness are destructive. When Rachma is active, the intentions that flow into awareness are based in love. And only one filter can be active at a time. That's why Rachma was so important. If it's active, then negative and destructive intentions are voided. The reason that's important is because intentions are the raw material of goals. You might remember 
an old saying that says the road to hell is paved with good intentions. What does that mean? It means that you can have the most wonderful intentions in the world, but if hostility or fear is active in your mind, and, and again, the reason why intentions are so important is they are raw material for goals. The goals that are active, if they're based in hostility or fear, the mind will totally and completely distort. It'll say, oh, I'm, I'm only, here's an example. The parent who says, I'm only beating you because I love you. I beg your pardon? What? Beating and love can't go in the, in the same sentence. It's just not possible. But a mind that has the fear filters active can imagine that, oh, I'm here, you know, I'm going to make sure this child has the best, and I'm going to beat them into it. And, and actually believe that that makes some sort of sane and logical sense. Love would say, the actual active presence of love would say, that's bizarre, that's outrageous. And the reason why goals are important, because it's goals that drive perception. And intentions are the raw material of goals. And so having intentions based in Rachma means your intentions are keyed to love instead of negative or destructive. That means that your goals are going to be based in love rather than producing perceptions that generate hostility and fear. So the word love my my offering my best understanding is the word love represents not something we do not something we can get from somebody else not something we can give to somebody else but literally who we are and when we're not functioning as love then there are ideas about self that need to be removed. That's the self that Yeshua said needs to die. That self needs to go to make room for the active presence of love. And that's one of the reasons why the forgiveness process is so important because if the mind is filled with generational patterns of all kinds of hostility or fear, and that's just you know kind of rocking and rolling in the mind, there's no room for the subtle presence of love or what was called the still small voice. Cultivating one's relationship, again, with love, as I spoke of earlier, is a way to strengthen that still small voice. But the descriptor for what a human life is, is that word love. The best way I know to really define it is to hold a newborn child and tap into the essence of that newborn. And as you tap into the essence of that newborn... Ask yourself the question, is the newborn love or is the newborn loving you? And what you'll find is that the newborn is the presence of love, and that's what you and I and every other person is. No matter how degraded one seems to be in appearance, the truth about them 
I don't care if you look at the, you know, with the stuff going on in the world today, the most outrageous criminal offenders, the most outrageous warmongers, the most outrageous political figures you can imagine. Why are they functioning that way? There is so much unresolved pain in them that it's outrageous. I wouldn't want to live in one of those bodies, thank you very much. I don't care if they're billionaires. The pain and trauma in that is just outrageous. So being aware that Rachma is a gateway for human life to enter a human form, now that you've got a definition for it, and you start to work with setting that, and you ask Ruka Dukudja that we spoke of earlier to assist you in setting Rachma in your mind. There's a correspondence. So that that's, again, in the frontal lobes, that's over intentions. And then in the back of the brain, there's a corresponding filter. The word's also been described as love, but it's actually Kuba. And that's a filter over the perceptual part of the brain, the back of the mind. And when Kuba is active, then only intentions keyed to love, or pardon me, only perceptions keyed to love. Now that the intentions are keyed to love, goals are based in love, perception now comes through Rachma rather than the hostility and fear filters. You know, and, and when they asked Yeshua, well, you know, geez, that sounds really complicated. How, how do you tell where somebody's at? He said, you look at their fruit. You look at the results they produce. If the mind is producing negative and destructive perceptions, that's the fruit of a mind that has not or is not being fueled by love. If a mind is in a state of irritation, that's a sign that the mind is not connected to, that Rachma and Kuba are not active, active and the mind is functioning out of its hostility or fear. And that's the time to come in with, one, forgiveness, collapsing those perceptions based in hostility or fear. Two, setting Rachma, activating Rachma, so that one has... A, By forgiving, one creates the space where love can show up. By having Rachma active, one opens a gateway for love to come present into the mind. Speaking about this at this moment makes me think about back many years ago, my partner in the uh, Kabor's Manuscript Project, Dan McDougald, was teaching in the federal penitentiary system in Atlanta, teaching laws of living. It was actually called EMI at that point, Emotional Maturity Instruction. And there was a man in the prison who was a convicted killer. I, I don't remember. He was doing a couple of life sentences for murder. He had actually murdered a couple of people while he was in prison. And he started to tap into what Dan was doing within the prison and had apparently had 
that experience. I never met the man. I didn't know him. This is just what Dan had shared with me. But this guy was just like a brutal, vicious killer. And some of the people that Dan was working with started to shift out of, you know, this is a, you know, a federal penitentiary, started to shift out of the, I, I guess we could call it the game of the prison system, the, the, the stuff that goes on, and move into a different place, a place more connected to love. And as a result, some of the power players in the prison put a price on and a contract out on Dan. And this guy who had been, you know, he killed several people over the period of his lifetime, became his protector, stepped up, saw what was happening, made a shift into functioning his love and actually protected Dan, saved his life. And that state is the state, the natural created state of every human being. What does the person who's expressing negatively, person who's playing life out of hostility and fear have to do? in order to recover the truth of who they are? It's going to be all of the above. It's going to be every tool that we're talking about. Forgiveness being the lead, cultivating your relationship with yourself as love, realizing yourself as love, consciously, purposely sourcing thoughts based in love for your own physiology to experience. So I hope that uh, that captures what that person was asking about and looking for. As we are here to acknowledge each and every one of you as being this presence of love that uh, that we're designed to be. And we're here to support you in experiencing that. So, Miss Jeannie, do we have anybody else in the phone queue with a hand up or anything else happening in the chat room? It is all quiet. And we have eight minutes. Well, then, well, actually, let's put up the call. Over outro, we've got seven. So we've got I'm about sorry if she wanted to explain to people about canceling a thought, and she said no. No? Oh, okay. Did you share that in the early part of the okay. show? I shared it yesterday, I think. Oh, yeah, we sh- you shared it yesterday. That's right. Yeah. yeah. But she's not interested in sharing that with anybody? No. Today? No. It's not. Are you? I have. Are you? Come yeah. on, share it with us. Here, talk to you. He's hey, on sweetie. the radio show. Yeah. Hey, yeah. sweetie, I heard you were telling your mommy, your mommy about canceling goals this weekend, were you? No. Canceling a thought. We're canceling a thought. No, you weren't. Well, your mommy said you were. <laughs> I do not remember. She doesn't remember, she said. Uh, okay. mommy said she oh, well. Had her time, so. <laughs> <laughs> yes, 
Cool. Well, all right. We've uh, we've got time for one more conversation. If you're out there in listener land, if you're on one of those stations where we can't see you, our call-in number is 563-999-3581. If you call that number, you're listening to the show. And then if you push one, raise the hand to the control panel, and Jeannie will invite you to chat with us. And if nobody else has a thought, a question, something to share, then I think I'm going to just say I'm, I'm complete with everything I have to share today. So I'm just going to say thank you for joining us, and uh, please create the best year of your eternal life. It's an awesome gift to give the world, and blessings. Thank you for listening to Mind Shifters Radio with Dr. Michael Rice and myself, Jeannie Rice, and Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet as we present the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We are here for two hours every Monday through Friday from 12 noon to 2 o'clock Eastern Time on Mind Shifters Radio. For more information on Aramaic forgiveness, please visit www.whyagain.org. That's www.whyagain.org.